I'm so glad that first day of May 2022 is actually Sunday. And let me ask you a timely question on the first Sunday of May 2020. Are you still rejoicing in the resurrection of risen Christ, which we celebrated three weeks ago? Are you still enjoying the euphoria of Easter? Or is the elation of Easter over for you, just like another big calendar event? Easter is an everyday experience. Resurrection of Jesus is a new reality for Christians to experience every day. I hope that you caught the repeated emphasis of our 2022 Easter Sunday and the post-Easter Sunday messages, which tells us that Easter is for everyone and for every day. That's why eating was a key biblical witness about the activity of our risen Christ, both in the Luke chapter 24 that I preached on Easter Sunday and John chapter 21 that Han preached the last Sunday, the risen Christ showed himself through the eating fellowship and the food metaphor. Why? Eating is an everyday event, and the food is essential for everyday life. Likewise, the joy and power and principle of Easter is ongoing and more relevant than ever. So to help everyone, Remember the Easter joy, I want to share with you today a song of a resurrection. song about resurrection from the Old Testament. And that song comes out from Psalm 126. So let's read Psalm 126 responsibly. When the Lord restored the fortunes, fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with the laughter, our tongues with the songs of joy. Then it was said that among the nation, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with the joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with the tears will reap with the songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with the songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Flowers fall, but the word of God lasts forever. Amen. Psalm 126 is one of the 14 psalms collected and called Songs of Ascent. Songs of Ascent. What is a song of ascent? Hebrew word for ascent is simply to go up. Since Jerusalem is sits on the hill, no matter where one comes from, one always goes up to Jerusalem. That's why a very common expression of worship in the Old Testament is, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. Have you heard that expression? Let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. That means let's prepare our heart to worship God in His temple. So in one word, Psalm 126 it's a pilgrim song to Jerusalem. So let me ask you, where are you heading these days? Where do you want to go in May 2022 and summer 2022? If you draw yourself to God and His Word, your life and your summer will be ascending and productive. But if you cater to desires of yourself with all the attractions of the world, your life will be descending 
and unfruitful. I pray that this seventh pilgrim song reminds us of the joy of a resurrection and help us to live a fruitful life of a glorious harvest for God. This song of a resurrection is divided into two parts. Verse 1 and 3 is about praise, and verse 4 and 6 is about prayer. So it's a praise and prayer. The first part celebrates God's utmost restoring faithfulness to his people, and second confesses our prayer for God's continuing mercy to enable us to reproduce the fruits of life. So let's look at the praise first. What is the context of a psalm's you know, praise today? If you look at the verse 1, it says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue with songs of joy. The historical context of Psalm 126 was when Israel returned from Babylonian exile after 70 years of captivity. Some of you have an old Bible translation like King James. King James actually say, God restores the captives of Zion. Captives of Zion. Jewish return to homeland was nothing less than a historical miracle because they did not beat the powerful Babylonian empire and liberate themselves. It was foreigner, Cyrus the Great, or Cyrus of Persia, or today's Iran, who conquered Babylon and all of a sudden graciously allowed the Jewish remnant to return to their homeland. By the way, the story of a Jewish return was written two books in the Bible, Book of Ezra and Book of Nehemiah. The return and restoration of Israel in their homeland after 70 years, after 70 years, roughly three generations back then, was just incredible and unbelievable. It was so shocking and unprecedented that even non-Jewish people recognized this historical miracle and they praised God. That's why if you look at the second half of verse 2, then it was said, among the nations, among the nations. Hebrew word for nations is a koim, which simply means Gentiles. So even Gentiles praise God and saying the, the Lord. Anytime you see the uh, English you know, word, the Lord, in capital letter, it means Yahweh, the covenantal name of God in Old Testament. The Lord, the Yahweh, the Jehovah has done great thing for them, Israelite. Throughout the book of Psalms, the nations are usually used negatively as they stand in opposition to the people of God. And their opposition to God's people comes in the form of a mocking questions concerning the absence of God, Israel's God, in kind of a world state. So following especially the Babylonian exile or captivity, this kind of a Gentile or pagan mockery to Israel became a more intensified and acute as the nations asked sarcastically, where is your God? Where is your God? So, for instance, if you look at the Psalm 42.3, it said the painful, uh, describes the painful humiliation of a Jewish exiles during the Babylonian captivity. It says, my tears have been my food day and night, while people, that means once again, goim, say to me all day long, where is your God? 
And then Psalm 79:10 expresses the exile's prayer. Why should the nations, again, goim or Gentiles say, where is their God? Before our eyes, make known among the nations, goim, that you avenge the outpour blood of your servant. So Israelites cry out to God, God, before these goims, before these Gentiles, vindicate us. We know you are great God. So word nations or goim are used negatively throughout the book of Psalms. But not today. In Psalm 126, this pagan mockery was replaced with a marble at Israel's God. They all recognized that Yahweh had done great things for them. They almost envy Israelites for their God, Yahweh's faithfulness to his people. And the Walter Brueggemann, a seminal Old Testament scholar, you know, made an observation here that usually in the Old Testament, uh, in the book of Psalms, when, the na when nations use the, uh, positively, they are summoned to praise God. Like, a, you know, Psalm 117 said, Praise the Lord, all you nations, exalt him, all your people, because God is a God of creator. Things like that. But here in Psalm 126, the nations were so astounded by God's restoration of Israel to their homeland after 70 years, their praise to God was a voluntary, spontaneous. Such was the act, the overwhelming, the act of God's restoration. So that's why Psalm 126 mentions a confession and praises of Gentiles first, then Israel's, you know, praise and elation in verse 3. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. So to Jewish people, the return from Babylonian exile was kind of a resurrection event for their nation because their nation died in the foreign invasion and they were collectively deported for law in a far distant place. And today, miraculously, they revived and they have a rebirth of their nation. You know, we Americans have a hard time to understand though, somebody losing the country because when was the last time we lost country, right? Briefly, we were, you know, colony of a British, I mean, you know, England, that's about it. So if you really want, you know, more, more uh, relevant, you know, um, comparison could be like the every Ukraine, you know, dreams today. Can you imagine the joy of Ukrainians when they hear the news that the Russians finally retreated? and their country fully recovered their sovereignty. My mother experienced the liberation of Korea from 36 years of a Japanese occupation as a junior high school student. She told me that she remembers that day, just like yesterday. Her Japanese uh, junior high school principal and teachers told the students to wait for some kind of announcement in the classroom, and they fled. And the students, while they're waiting in the class, they heard from speaker, I mean, they actually heard the radio, they a Japanese anthem. And all of a sudden, a student rushed into the classroom and they shouted that, that the news about the Japanese, you know, I mean, surrender of Japan by Emperor Hirohito 
And all of a sudden, everybody shouted and screamed and, you know, streamed out into the, in the street. And my mother has never seen so many Korean flags everywhere until that day. So she said she knew that Korea was free at last. You know, the one big difference of Korean liberation from Japanese and Israel's return from Babylonian is this. Koreans still live their own country. Jewish people, they were conquered and moved, forcibly moved, deported to far away. And then seven years later, they came back and restarted. Do you know any country, any nation, any people have a start like that? Here we must recognize important historical fact and biblical truth. That is, Israel represents God's unique faithfulness to his people in history. The continuing existence of Israel for 3,500 years is a huge historical exception and anomaly that calls our attention. So Leo Tolstoy, a famous famed you know, Russian writer, once noted the uniqueness of Israel in this way. What is a Jew? What kind of unique creatures is this, whom all rulers of all nations of the world have disgraced, crushed, and expelled and destroyed, persecuted and burned and drowned, and who, despite their anger and their fury, continue to live and to flourish? What is this Jew, whom they have never succeeded in enticing with all the enticement in the world? whose oppressors and persecutors only suggested that he deny or disown his religion and cast aside the faithfulness of his ancestors. The Jew is a symbol of eternity. He is the one who for so long had guarded the prophetic message and transmitted to all mankind. People such as this can never disappear. The Jew is eternal. He is embodiment of eternity. Winston Churchill also said this. Some people like the Jews, some do not. You know, he's talking about as, you know, uh, anti-Semitist. You know. But no thought man can deny the fact that they are, beyond any question, the most formidable, most remarkable race which has appeared in the world. You know, once a crown prince of Prussia, Wilhelm II, he struggled with his doubt about the existence of God. So one day he asked his chaplain, the reverend, do you think God really exists? And the Prussian royal chaplain was someone who knew history, so he immediately replied, sire, do you think it, was, it is possible for Jewish people to exist all this time without God's help? The Persian, you know, royal chaplain was absolutely right. By the way, did you know anti-Semitism was strong more than 1,000 years in Europe before Nazis came and massacred you know, Hitler? And also, do you notice that... Oh, let, me, let me read one more quote. Also, America's, you know, uh, so-called Shakespeare, the Mark Twain, had the same observation about Jewish people. I like this quote, so let me read it one more time. The Egyptian, Babylonian, and Persians rose, filled the planet with a sound and splendor, and then faded to the dream stuff and passed away. 
Greeks and Romans followed, made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other people have sprung up and they held their torch high for time, but it burned out. They sit in the twilight now and have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, is now what, they, what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his part, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All the forces pass, but he remains. What is secret of his immortality? Do you know the secret of Jewish immortality that Mark Twain asked? was none other than God's faithfulness to his promise and his resurrecting power. By the way, did you notice that both Mark Twain and the Leo Tolstoy's statement about resilience of Jewish people were made before the Holocaust? In 20th century, Jewish people suffered the greatest genocide in human history, yet they are here with us today. So, do you remember a month ago we have a guest speaker, you know, Kilam Cha from Evelyn Christian University, who said history is not written by winners, but by weird, unique losers called Jewish people? Do you guys remember that statement? Bible is a history of unique losers beating all the winners. And Bible tells us God's losers are stronger than any winners in the world. So let me ask you, are you God's losers or are you winners of the world? Do you like to be winners of the world or rather you want to be the losers of God? I'd rather lose with God than win with the world. You know, I'd rather fail in the cause that eventually will succeed than succeed in the cause that eventually fails. As we begin 2022 summer very soon, I really pray that we choose God. And if we choose God, you will have an everlasting joy throughout and especially at the end. Psalm 126 is full of joy. The original Hebrew text has a three colorful words that I don't have time to go through, but the laughter, you know, sakad, and the singing, rina, and joy, sama. You know, so one commentator said, you cannot just read Psalm 126, but shout at the top of your lung and sing loudly with joy. So that's the first part of Psalm 126. Now, after praising God for resurrecting power to restore Israel, author of Psalm 126 makes a petition to God. That's the second part of the psalm. So praise leads to prayer. By the way, that's a good way to pray. You know, when you pray, some of you struggle how to pray. You know how to pray? Praise God. Whatever comes to your mind. I, I loved it, you know, the way we started our worship today. You know, Joy said, breath in our lung. It's not just a biological. It's theological because God is the one who placed the breath in our lung so that every breath should be praised to God. You know, praise God. Start your prayer with a praising God, and then out of the praising, you will be so energized to pray for yourself and others. Now, he is praying for God's blessings. Look at the verse 4. Restore our fortune, Lord, like the streams in Negev. 
Those who sow with the tears will reap with the songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with the songs of joy, carrying sheep with them. While the first part praises that the God, or Yahweh, demonstrated His power in a sort of a world stage involving all the nations, the second half of the psalm is directed in the personal and communal context. So if the first part is about God's global sovereignty in history, the second part is God's nearness in local life setting. So psalmists ask for God's abundant blessings, especially here with the imagery of a flash flood. That's what like streams in the Negev means. During the summer month, Negev, the south southern uh, desert area of Judah, is a desolate and almost lifeless. But with the winter rains, the riverbeds will uh, fill quickly with the water, and once a barren landscape comes to life. Californians understand better. You know, California is called, called the Golden State because, you know, it's a, throughout the year, it's a sun-scorched, you know, place. But all of a sudden, winter comes, what happened to the Golden State? Golden State become a green state, right? Then psalmists make a great statement of faith today. Verse 5 and 6. Those who sow with the tears will reap with the songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, crying, see to sow, will return with the songs of joy, carrying ships with them. Twice in the Psalm 126, emphasize sowing with the tears and reaping with the joy. Sowing with the tears and reaping with the joy. Here we must remember the biblical truth that all spiritual harvest involves tears. All spiritual harvest involves tears. Spiritual harvest is not just a sowing, but all about sowing with the tears. What is a sowing with the tears? According to biblical scholars, this was the poor farmer's sowing. A farmer who had no other option for the future. No margin of error for tomorrow. Was a desperately committed to farming. Whatever he could spare, he was putting all in one basket called the next harvest. In one word, sowing with the tears means a last attempt. If this harvest fails, the farmer has no more chance for life. So sowing with the tears means following God desperately, and wholeheartedly. Are we following God like that? From this, we also learn the spiritual fact that there are two tears in our faith journey. First tears are the initial tears of a poverty and brokenness and desperation. I know some of us are going through that right now. There are several people are really having a hard time. Uh, mental health is a serious issue these days. And some of our people that I've been praying are not here, are going through that. So I hope they join through the Zoom and then hear all this message of God's comfort. The second tier is the final tears of joy and gratitude and euphoria. The first tier is the tears that we saw in agonizing obedience of Christ in Garden of Gethsemane. The second tier is that that we saw on Easter Sunday, that of the resurrection joy. 
Only those who shed painful tears of obedience and humility will savor the glorious tears of a joy later. And Bible is very clear about the spiritual law of a sowing and harvesting. And Apostle Paul loved this you know, metaphor of a sowing and reaping. So in Galatians 6-7, he said this, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. You know what he meant by that? Don't, don't be deceived because you have a pious feeling for God. It's not about feeling. Because during the worship, you, full, you, you got goosebumps. That doesn't mean you love God. If you love God, you obey. You act. So Paul said, do not be deceived by pious feeling or emotions or even circumstances. God cannot be mocked. Man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh they will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit, from the spirit they will reap eternal life. Life is like a garden. You, we reap what we sow. And Paul once again said in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Stephen Covey, well-known you know, uh, uh, author of a bestseller, The Seven Habits of a Highly Effective People, once said this, You always reap what you sow. There is a no shortcut. I like the second statement. There is a no shortcut between sowing and reaping. There is a no shortcut in spiritual harvest. Without the prayers of a tear, there is a no triumph of glory. Shepherds, I want to remind you again, our house church ministry is a humanly impossible. How can sinners come together and share their life? We are all selfish. Shepherds' prayer of tears matters. Without, uh, so there is, since there is a no shortcut, let us really choose and embrace the tears of a humble, desperate sowing so that we can have a glorious harvest at the end. And I want to remind all of us this, that we are not product of our circumstances. We are always product of our choices. When we focus on our circumstances, you know what? We will spend more time on you know, urgent things, desperately. And when we focus on urgent things, the only thing that we will you know, uh, 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 reap is a survival. But when we focus on important things, such as a spiritual conviction that God laid on our heart, guess what? You will reap the lasting fruits. So we will never change our life until we change our choices. We can make, and then the good news is this, you and I can make a great choices today because we have a historically demonstrated and experientially proven Choice of God's love in Christ. Jesus showed us the power and principle of a spiritual harvest through his death and resurrection. Jesus said in John 12, 23 this. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I'll tell you, unless a kernel of a wheat falls to the ground and dies, 
it remains only single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who has their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is the ultimate kernel of a wheat that died for us, and we are product of his death and resurrection. As a fruit of his resurrection, guess what? We also become the seed of the gospel for others if we die to ourselves and die for God's love and truth. Now, let me close uh, today's message with uh, my, uh, uh, my testimony. As I celebrated my mother's you know, 90th birthday in Korea last week, I found uh, this truth of a sowing seed with the tears and weeping with the joy very clearly in my mother's life. My mother, Sunny Park, lived a more colorful life than most people in her generation, a.k.a. Korean version of a great generation, because they went through the brutal Japanese colonization and the horrors of a Korean War and very difficult, sweaty industrialization. So let me briefly share the, her story as a testimony and testament uh, of a spirit, to this spiritual harvest. From early childhood, my mother experienced an unusual hardship in life. For instance, at the age of five, she got lost and wandered into the next town, and the people in that town who took her in intentionally kept her as a future maid. And she was uh, rescued by her uncle two years later. At the age of seven, she saw her mother, my grandmother, remarry a rich man for her family's survival. And then she and my aunt missed their mother so much that they cry out, Mom, every night at the hill behind their small cottages for several months that everyone in the town heard and they felt bad about, bad, bad for them. At the age of 10, her father, who became a communist during his study at Waseda University in Japan, took the whole family to North Korea. There, she experienced not only strict communist rule, but a harsh treatment of a stepmother, and she had a nervous breakdown as a teenager and spent a year in Buddhist temple. That's where, you know, old, olden days, you go to rest, you know, quiet mountainside. Later, at the age of 18, she fled to South Korea as a war refuge, and because her father was a well-known communist leader in North Korea, she has to hide in the refuge ship and all kinds of stories, you know, very Hollywood or Pachenko kind of stories come, came out. Anyway, she self-made made she self-made as a cashier in the U.S. Army base in Busan and even became a telephone operator in that base as a rare, just like a, she, she became a rare career woman back then. After she married uh, my father, a conservative math teacher, she realized that South Korea offered too little for children. And plus, she, her father is still alive in North Korea, so Korean CIA, every year they came and investigated. So she thought South Korea is a no, we, we don't have. My brother and I have no future in South Korea. So she convinced the family to immigrate to South, South America. And she immigrated not only once, but three times. First to Argentina, and two years later to Venezuela, 
and then briefly to even United States for four years. She constantly moved and tried to improve her life and family's life, both her country and the foreign land. And then greatest change came to her exactly when she was at the beginning of second half of her life. At the age of 46, my mother met Christ and gave her heart to him in the slums of Caracas, Venezuela. She was a religious and spiritual before she followed Christ. She was a Buddhist. But her life was nothing but toils and disappointment. She sowed her own seed hard, but nothing was produced. With Christ, she found the true kernel of life in the truth of the gospel. She believed and obeyed God's call wholeheartedly. She was never shy about giving generously and serving sacrificially. Her prayer, coupled with the fasting, had many supernatural and almost uh, uh, miraculous testimonies. So if you want to know more, you know, ask me later. You know, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip all this. But her ultimate sacrifice to the Lord was her treasures. That's her children. She gave her children to the Lord. She always encouraged, even challenged my older brother to give sacrificially. My brother found the inspiration of giving in my mother or his mother. She supported me and my sister to follow the calling of a full-time Christian ministry. And not many you know, Korean immigrant families in South America send their kids to the U.S. to study. And we are not wealthy at all. They sacrificially supported our you know, education in the United States as a foreign students. And when it was done, they were not seeking any financial gain. And when I told them that I was praying about God's calling to become a full-time ministry, if she said, no, you, got to get, you have to go to whatever business school or law school to make money for family, I probably followed her advice because I felt so indebted to her. But without an even instant of uh, you know, hesitation, she said, love God with all of her heart and, and soul and strength. So I want to tell you, Without our sacrificial sowing, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. And I would not be serving and growing with you at Forest. My mother's life is a story of a sowing. The seed of the gospel with the tears and sacrifice. And reaping it later, all the fruits with the joy. God blessed her with nine grandchildren and two great-grandchildren and more to come, hopefully from my side. I have three daughters, so, you know, I have potential. And reflecting her life, she she has nobody. Everything she did on her own failed, but everything that she did with God bird of fruit. That's my mother. Now she's praying for grandchildren to make a continual legacy. That's why we get together, even though South Korean government bureaucracy about the COVID-19 restriction was incredibly annoying, and I, I, this is not a good time to travel to South Korea. Don't go. Go later. But here we are. Not just my mother, 
What about all the Christians before us? None of us are here by ourselves. But because somebody sowed the seed of the gospel in our life, that's why we are here. Don't forget how we could be here today, celebrating the Easter and then, you know, continuing joy of journeying with God. And we pray this summer, let us grow in God's word. And let us spread the soul, I mean, seed for others around us so that more can join this glorious harvest of God's love. Let's pray.